0: Good afternoon. Welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresto on this lovely Tuesday afternoon. By the way, for those of you interested, I'm the host of Unveiling the Covenants here at Ave Maria Radio. And feel free to go on to and look up some of my episodes. The reason I mention this is because our next guest, was also a guest on my program, Unveiling the Covenants. And it's a TV and radio program, so you may feel free to go look it up on YouTube. And this guest is none other than Gary Machuta. For those of you who listen to EWTN Radio in the mornings, the Sunrise Morning Show, Gary is a regular guest on Thursday mornings, and I greatly enjoy listening to his segments. Hundreds of books have been written to vindicate the Gospels by noting that they were written closer to the events than they record. that they record than any other in ancient history. But how do we know that the scriptures accurately recorded what Jesus said and what Jesus did? What, what evidence or motives of credibility do we have when approaching especially the Gospels? We talked to Gary Machuta. Gary is a friend. He's the author of several books, most recently, The Gospel Truth, How Can We Know What Christ Taught, and Revolt Against Reality, Fighting the Enemies of Sanity and Truth. He's an instructor of apologetics for Homeschool Connections, and he's also the host of Hands-On Apologetics for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Gary, my friend, how are you doing? Doing great, Marcus. How are you doing? I'm really good, thank you. And it's great to hear from you. Your Combrex is working great, I hear.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely.
0: It's just like being in the same room with you. Oh, it really it really does sound fantastic. So, uh, I, 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 I read the book. Uh, it, it's brilliant. I mean, the amount thank of... You research that went into it i, I so i want i want to start by saying this as as I went through chapter by chapter, I realized, gosh, I would not have thought to have written in this way. You know, like I, if, if I was writing on this topic, I would have taken other approaches, which simply demonstrates not only the uniqueness of the way you look at topics, which I've, I've, I've always had great respect for, uh, it also demonstrates the uniqueness of your approach in writing this book. That's why it's so crucial. Th- th- this book, in, in my opinion, is going to be one of those things that has an enduring legacy in the conversation of you know validity of the Gospels. So what prompted you to look at add the validity of the Gospels in this way.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, although, you know, I, I'm sure... Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say uh, I wouldn't have written it like that. I would have read it better than... Oh, gosh, you- <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so what prompted me? Well, um, there's not a lot in the Catholic world that's been written to vindicate the, uh, the reliability of the Gospels. Uh, mm-hmm. There are some older works, but not so much modern works most of the the heavy lifting has been done by our evangelical brothers and sisters yep and uh, and w- when i read their treatments what i find is that they do an outstanding job they're trying to vindicate the text right the new testament text or even the old and new testament text but you know when it comes to wider questions and i think the most important questions namely how do we know that what's recorded in the gospels is actually true how do we know that they they didn't make this up or embellish it or uh or uh, even perpetrate a hoax right mm-hmm. so uh in the evangelical approach you know they open up the possibility that this could be re- historically reliable like you said, that the earliest copies we have is much closer to the times of the events that they record. Mm -hmm. All of that opens up the door for the New Testament text being reliable. But, you know, it's those wider questions of, were they truthful? Right, right. And uh, so that always intrigued me, that question. So what I thought was, we need to have a Catholic treatment that not only vindicates the the text of scripture, but also the reliability of scripture. And then, as you know, I take it even one step further in that, how can we verify the meaning of scripture and things like the canon of scripture and so on and so forth? Um, you know, the, those are very important questions because I've, I've gone on uh, social media and seen dialogues with atheists. And atheists, even if you vindicate the text that our text is identical to the original, Mm -hmm. they'll say, well, how do you know what's the proper interpretation of that text? Because we have all these different contradictory interpretations and so on. So I kind of put it all into one book. And uh, thanks be to God, you know, through the editing at the staff at Emmaus Road, um, it's. I think it's very readable and accessible. It truly is.
0: I, I was reading this. As, my favorite chapter has been Chapter 3 thus far, and largely because of my you know, deep love for linguistic and textual analysis. And you do a brilliant work. So for those of you who have a copy of the book, The Gospel of Truth, How Can We Know What Christ Taught? You're going to find this from page 23 and onwards. You do brilliant work, Gary, of showing the Hebraic roots of even the Koine Greek application of the New Testament. So, I I, want to just say a word in corroboration. Gary, you're completely right that (laughs) all of the heavy lifting when it comes to the validity of the New Testament has been done by our evangelical brothers and sisters. It's like we almost take for granted that we have magisterial authority. So, you know, big whoop. Like, you, you can shoot whatever arrows you want at us. We have Christ's assurance, which on the one hand is fantastic, but on the other hand, that also means that we are fighting on the winning side and we ought to at least engage in the battle. Yeah. Because as a, as a Protestant before this, in, as a Pentecostal uh, My pastors basically say you know, This is the word of God And we trust that this is what I say it. Uh, sorry uh, that, that I am what I say it is What, I, what it says I am And, and you know you, you kind of like Amen and hallelujah And then you go on to the Evangelical Presbyterian More intellectual examination And they're attempting to use secular tools You know like the historical critical analysis uh, To demonstrate the validity of the New Testament texts That's mm-hmm. why you, you have you know Finding literary fragments and whatnot. But what you do is different you're not just looking for archaeological evidence. You're not just, and let's face it, yeah, we have over 25,000 fragments that demonstrate the fact that all the way to the, the the first few centuries of complete accuracy of our gospel accounts. But you also go one step further. You go on to talk about, no, no, you've you got to understand, uh, there is no motivation for these authors to have written these things unless they were true because there's a pedagogical value to this.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's and and what I do is I do it in the context of this mechanism that Jesus tapped into and that is the the rabbi disciple relationship because in God's providence and foreknowledge, you know, he incarnated within a people group that was orally based and they already had like a mechanism for passing on large amounts of data very accurately mm-hmm. th- from rabbi to disciple to rabbi to disciple. And so uh, that's kind of where I, I start the conversation is, well, let's just look at the text, not assuming that they're inspired scripture, and see whether there is indications in the Gospels that Jesus used this method. And I, I think I show that. And then my next uh, step is well let's look at the text themselves and see if there was any effort to promote the accurate recall of what was written right. so I'm looking for mnemonic devices mm-hmm. and uh, that's where chapter three comes in you know that it, that's not Greek to me because the <laughs> weird thing about the Gospels Marcus is that the gospel the earliest copies we have of the Gospels are Greek mm-hmm. as you know mm-hmm. but there are parts of the Greek Gospels that don't read as Greek. They actually read as Hebrew or Aramaic right. in the Greek language. Right, right, right. Which is a really strange thing to do if you're writing to a Greek audience, right? Why would you? Why would you write a text that you would use phraseology and things like that that simply it, it wouldn't even be perceived by your audience? Right. And even more so, and and I'm largely basing this on a French scholar, uh, Jean Carmagnac, who uh, was an expert in Dead Sea Scroll um, Hebrew and Aramaic. And he thought, he he wanted to see if he could take the Gospels and back translate them into the Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And he thought this would be very difficult, because after all, they're Greek texts. Right, right. But what he found out was, it was remarkably easy, and that he uh, accomplished a lot very quickly. And while he was going through it in this tiny little book he has, I think it's uh, solving the synoptic problem or something to that effect, he he shows that underneath the Greek there are little bits and pieces that we can discern that are Aramaic or Hebrew. And not only that, but I believe some of those pieces seem to be designed for accurate recall. In Mm. other words, they're mnemonic devices. Yep. So yeah, that's one of my favorite chapters too, just uncovering some of the things that were hidden in the Greek. And the the funny thing is the original audience, they wouldn't have a clue about these devices, right? This is all hidden underneath the text. Right. right. So it's like, okay, why are they there? Well, because the the Greek gospels use Semitic sources that are earlier than themselves. Mm Mm-hmm. And those Semitic sources are formatted in such a way that they could be recalled accurately.
0: Right. And especially when we consider that, you know, uh, going back to the notion of the 25,000 fragments of the gospel, sure, you know, the earliest fragments we find uh, in Greek, in, in Koine Greek. But at the same time, we have near to the original sources in terms of dating, uh, Latin manuscripts. We have Syriac, Slavic, Gothic uh, Ethiopic, uh, Coptic, Nubian, Armenian sources, fragments mm-hmm. of the gospel, and they all corroborate in narrative. So this work that you're doing in linguistic analysis shows that the drawing from a Hebrew origin, a cultural origin and source, a Semitic source, that, is, that predates even the Greek, simply shows that this is a heritage that continued on in a very accurate, reliable manner. But those of you listening, if, if you don't quite understand this, uh, one of the things that Gary is trying to touch on here is that from English, saying that it's raining cats and dogs makes sense until you want to translate that into, say, Mandarin. And all of a sudden, literally saying it's raining cats and dogs makes absolutely no sense. And and, and yet that's captured. So, uh, yeah, go on, Gary. Just comment on that a little more, please.
1: Yeah. yeah well, I, that's a great example of, uh, we call it idiomatic phrases. And... Uh, Pepper, throughout the Gospels, you have these little phrases that are not Greek and probably wouldn't make a lot of sense in Greek, but they would make sense within a Semitic context. So why is this important? Well, what it shows is that the, the Gospels that we have, you know, the current dating we have, which is actually very close to the time and the events that they record, is actually earlier That there is these pre-canonical sources, Mm -hmm. Semitic sources, that the Gospels relied on that were even closer to the events, (laughs) if you can believe that. And so uh, that's astounding in and of itself. And like I said, uh, and then you put on top of that that some of these um, Semitic sources show some special formatting, like word plays, Mm -hmm. things like that, which would help the person actually remember word for word how to recall what was originally taught.
0: Right, right, right. It, because you highlight this, this notion of sons and stones and banim, ahbanim, and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, the, the interplay that would not be found in the Greek, but any Hebrew listener listening to this, or at the very least Aramaic and then Hebrew listening to this, they'd understand that this interplay is an Old Testament interplay that they understand well if, if they had their roots uh, uh, grounded. Been talking to Gary Machuta, author of several books. Most recently, Gospel of Truth, How We Can Know That Christ Taught uh, How We Can Know What Christ Taught. This is published by Emmaus Press. Please stay tuned as we continue the conversation with Gary for the whole hour and Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. I'm talking with Gary Machuta, author of several books, most recently, The Gospel Truth, How We Can Know What Christ Taught. Marcus Peter, filling in for Alcrester and this is an intriguing book published by Emmaus press uh, that, that basically highlights the validity of the text in the Gospels as well as the historical accuracy of the gospels so Gary, i want to i, I, I don 't want to sidetrack from a lot of things, but I do want to mention this I, I wanted to mention this as soon as we began this, but you know you and I when we start talking, we get into the weeds, and I forgot this one of the most popular works out there that attempts to bring about some kind of Defense, if you will, public secular defense of the validity of the Gospels, especially is uh, Lee Strobel's book. It's, it's a, it's a pretty old book now. It's dated, but it's pretty well researched. It's uh, the case for the real Jesus, which he wrote after the case for Christ. And he's answering to these modern academic accusations against the validity of the Gospels. And that's what I meant by your book takes a different approach, but a very good one. So uh, I, I want to go back to this notion of uh, Structuring the Gospels for the reality of accurate recall. Why, why is that something that we ought not to take for granted? It, it's very crucial that the Gospels were written that way. Why is that something that we ought to pay attention to?
1: Yeah, and, you know, all these years when I read Scripture, I just thought it was Bibleese. That, <laughs> that's just the way the Bible talks, you know. And then I realized, no, these are this is a different. I mean, there's multiple layers, uh, Marcus, of formatting. For accurate recall, and uh, it, it's important because what it shows is that the the person who delivered these lessons deliberately uh, made these lessons in a format that would be remembered. And could be recalled so that if you forget a certain section, just knowing the basic structure and context, you would be able to fill in the blanks. And that's something that everybody does nowadays. Like if that's you're right. trying to remember a song, right, and you can't remember some words, you fill it in with da, 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 right? That's right you have yeah, that's that right. rhythm
0: pattern, right? Like for everyone listening right now, if I go, her name was Lola, she was a showgirl, a lot of people would have Copacabana playing their heads right now.
1: Exactly, yeah, so so there 's rhymes and rhythms that help kind of give us mental bookshelves to put things in our memory, and if we forget something, the rhyme or the rhythm can give you clues as to the things that you forget right and and that 's exactly what you find in the gospels that the gospels have this hebraic uh, poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, which isn't it isn't like uh, English poetry. It's right. more conceptual poetry, which is fascinating in itself. But but throughout the Gospels, you have, you know, these especially the sayings of the Lord, where uh, it's in a particular rhyme or format or a lament. Uh, that's just one layer. Uh, formatting, like mm-hmm. I said, there, there's probably about a half dozen layers yep, that yep. I was able to find. Yep, and
0: and I, I I was blown away by all of them as you kept getting deeper. St- <laughs> because I too, you know, you and I both do this. We we try to read the scriptures in the original language to try to get to the heart of what they're saying. And in the Hebrew, you're completely right. The imagery and the the notion of of rhyming couplets is so prevalent throughout the Old Testament. It's almost taken for granted that you're going to understand how the morphology works. For example, the earth was formless and void. I mean, the English captures nothing. But in yeah. Hebrew, the earth was tohu wabohu. It's like empty, empty. Uh, the earth yeah. was nothing, nothing.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, uh, and unfortunately, a lot of it... Some of it you can see in the English translation, and, and I give you that. And some of it... you. It, you present in the Greek, it doesn't really carry over to English. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it's remarkable. Uh, You go through all all this formatting, and then you have to ask yourself, okay, if the Gospels is just a fabrication, it's a hoax, it's something, some legend that somebody was kind of just exploring in the ancient world, why go through all the trouble of uh, this meticulously formatting stuff that isn't even in the language of the the document that you're, you're writing. In other words, no one will see the formatting, really. That's right. And yet, you know, there was all this meticulous work that was done underneath the text. And, you know, I think that in itself kind of, if it's a hoax, it is so ov- overly engineered. Yep, and hoax, know, it's just yep. mind-blowingly over-engineered. For so, those
0: of you listening, so uh, uh, yeah. what What Gary and I are essentially talking about is for, for narratives that are essentially lies, essentially a hoax, you're, you're going to have the problem of what's known as narrative consistency. Number one, all of the details are going to be painstakingly meticulously crafted to be completely equal, and lawyers and, and uh, law enforcement personnel and even judges know that when, that, when all all the witness accounts line up exactly the same way there's a problem but on the other hand when you're talking about a true narrative consistency is in the core uh, is in the core narrative the, some of the minor details are excluded but But what you're going to notice is that there are certain tools, if you will, embedded within the narrative to allow for the recall to become easier. You know, like uh, I I saw this woman and she she looked frantic as opposed to she was wearing a pink shirt. So uh, uh, how does that play out in the scripture narrative? Well, very simple. What, What did Mary have? Well, Mary had a little lamb. And we know that because, as I mentioned, there's some of us have the tune playing in our heads. Society and culture has always used mnemonic devices and rhyming couplets, rhyme and rhythm, and rhyme and meter to bring about pedagogical truths. And the scriptures are no different.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It said it much better than I did.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, Gary, I, did. I mean, let's let's be honest. I got all those insights from reading your book. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so you have all that. And and what's cool, reading my book, uh, I think once you read it, and then you read the New Testament, all this stuff's going to jump out at you, the the things that you've just read millions of times and and never really struck you. You know, there's other things, too. For example, uh, locations. On occasion, Jesus will choose specific locations to give discourses. And often the location itself will clue you in on what he says. Um, mm. You know, I, the classic example would be in Caesarea Philippi. Right, I was to say that, yeah. Yeah, where he names uh, Simon Rock, right? And uh, in Caesarea Philippi, there's this huge outcropping of rock. And on top of the rock is a temple dedicated to Caesar as God. And so you have a pagan temple built upon a rock. And then Jesus says, Simon, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I'll build my church. Mm-hmm. So even if you're trying to recall what was it that Jesus said to Simon, just knowing that it was in Caesarea Philippi, you actually have right, you know, the right, backdrop right. for everything he says. Right.
0: And, and even uh, conversely, what Simon said to Peter, uh, what Simon said to Jesus first, because like you yeah. said, knowing that it's in Caesarea Philippi, well, Caesar had this prominent title of being son of God. So Peter's confession of Jesus's divinity and being the only begotten son of God was a complete refutation of any semblance of divinity Caesar was claiming. the, The claim could have gotten them killed. So just knowing the name of the place evokes
1: all of these memories. Yeah, exactly. And and not only that, but liturgical feast, like the Feast of Tabernacles that had a water ceremony and had a, a lighting of lamps. Mm-hmm. And Jesus, you know, that's where Jesus says, he who's thirsty, come to me and drink in the light of the world, you know, in the context of these feasts. So you can imagine right. his followers after the resurrection, whenever they attended the Feast of Tabernacles there in Jerusalem, you know... It could not help but evoke those very words of Jesus. In, and and you do a
0: very good job of ensuring that the notion of accurate recall, recall hinges more on liturgical repeti- uh, repetition. So you do that in chapter five, and then in chapter six you talk about you, you tackle that you know that modern argument that actually holds no water. Well, you know we've all played the telephone game, and therefore we see how unreliable <laughs> that is, and therefore how can you trust oral tradition until the the scriptures were written down? But seriously, that's not how it happened at all. So tell us about that.
1: Yeah, well, actually, you know, the telephone game is a great example of how it wasn't transmitted. (laughs) Right. You know, (laughs) if you go through all the components, the reason why the telephone game always fails at the end is precisely because it's a private message. The message is not important. It's usually something somebody comes off the top of their head. No one hears it except the person whispering it, and, and it's being whispered. You know, there's all these components that add distortion. So when you finally get to the last person, the final message is nothing like the original. And so that's, you know, that's why the game's so entertaining. But Mm -hmm. the thing is, Jesus's words and deeds were not something, you know, uh, something off the top of his head that was whispered into an individual's ear and he whispered into another individual's ear, right? It was done publicly, and uh, like his miracles, and there are witnesses and hearers. And then the apostles, when they're preaching the gospel, they do so publicly, and there's witnesses. And unlike the, the telephone game, you know, if you're not sure what the apostle said, you could always ask the apostle or ask the person next to you, did he say this? I thought he said that. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, That's... it's it's the exact opposite of of how uh, the gospel was transmitted in, in antiquity. I
0: and I. I... I am ashamed to express that I know this movie, The Life of Brian. Uh, but, it, <laughs> but 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 yeah. there's this scene where Jesus is giving the, the the sermon on the mount, and people on the outskirts of the crowd are still desperately trying to hear him. So when he goes, "Blessed are the peacemakers," one person turns to you, "But what did he say?" And, and the other person said, "I don't know. He said something about cheesemakers." Yeah. <laughs> and then but another it's... person goes, "Blessed are the cheesemakers." And, <laughs> and <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but, but the fact is, that's not how it happened because in the context of all these disciples, whenever one needed verification,
1: they just had to ask the other person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and that's part of that rabbi-disciple relationship that I, I kind of outlined at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't just the rabbi. Rabbi just doesn't spout out words and then the disciples memorize it. It was more like training and formation, maybe right. the lawyers, right? So the teacher will ask questions to his disciples, and the disciples would ask poignant questions to the, the, the rabbi. Right. And it's through this, you know, this uh, formation that they learn not only what the lesson is, but how to apply it as well. Right. So once Jesus is ascends to heaven, right, then you have the apostles. And remember in the text, and there's also a, in rabbinic writings, there's also a parallel that when a disciple, you know, it's enough for a disciple to be like his teacher. And that's the goal of a disciple is to actually even mimic his teacher, even in the way he said things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, which to me really fires my imagination to sit and listen to, you know, listen to an apostle and realize he's probably preaching kind of in the same tone and with the same kind of mannerisms Jesus did.
0: Right, right, right. And and that, that truly sincerely is outstanding because, like you mentioned, it's not the, when Jesus spoke words; it wasn't just like Aristotle putting out putting out teachings on say logic or, or metaphysics. No, no, no. Yeah. Every sentence that he uttered that we have recorded in the Gospels is pedagogy to the end of discipleship, pedagogy
1: to the end of formation. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, you know, so even when Christ isn't delivering it, but his apostles are you're still tapped into that specific tradition that was handed on by our Lord to the apostles. And of course, the apostles have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And so they also have new teaching and new applications.
0: Right. And we're going to continue this conversation with Gary Matuta, apologist extraordinaire and author of The Gospel Truth, How We Can Know What Christ Taught, published by Emmaus Press. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on this Tuesday afternoon. Ending the hour with this final segment with Gary Matuta, author of The Gospel of Truth, How We Can Know What Christ Taught, published by Emma- Emmaus Road Press. And he is also an apologist extraordinaire. He's the host of Hands-On Apologetics for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. So, Gary, I want to... Uh, you know you know me and, and my sense of humor and I I, <laughs> I can't help but pick up a couple of things first of all I want to give a little nod to uh, William Albrecht so he doesn't know me so I can't say mutual friend but I'm very familiar with his work and even mm-hmm. the way he speaks and writes and <laughs> the endorsement that he put for you is such a William Albrecht statement to make <laughs> you know, the second half of it it should, be, it should also be noted that the footnotes are a treasure trove waiting to be scoured a must own <laughs> book I saw that and thought gosh if anyone Knows William Albrecht that, that that's totally what he would say.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the- definitely.
0: Uh, but I, I do. I, I must say, though, uh, the research that you put in really shows forth in, in the footnotes, and I'm very appreciative of them. And I did, in fact, read all the footnotes. And so, you know, much as you I could. you know take a jab at William Albrecht, I, I, I'm guilty of the same thing. <laughs> so you're a nerd as well, <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> but I also couldn't help realize that on page 83 and page 126, you quote your own works, and I, uh-huh. I, I, I think to myself, gosh, that is the height of prolific authorship <laughs> when you've done the research before and you're like, you know what? I don't feel like quoting original sources. I can just quote myself. That's right.
1: Yeah, you know, I I got that from Father Stanley Yaki. God rest his soul. <laughs> yes, he did that. Yes. Yeah, because uh, he he ta- said it, he was telling about a story he was he did at a university, and someone asked some question, and he said, "Read my book, this, and you'll get all the answers and footnotes." And then he moves on. I thought, wow, what remarkable freedom to be able to just, you know, if you have a question, just read this, you know. So, yeah, I I try to – I figure, you know, how many other people are going to quote me? I might as well quote myself. (laughs) (laughs) You're too modest, sir. You're way too modest. So uh, we were talking about the telephone game
0: and the transmission of – uh, of biblical truth, you know, in, in terms of accurate recall, and why why that's a notion that was so crucial to the not just the penning, but prior to that, the transmission of the biblical narrative, mm-hmm. and and you just comment on this briefly, because I also want to talk about the role of the liturgy in in cultivating that 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 medium that allowed for this flourishing of accurate recall but in in modern society today you and i are noticing more and more that attention spans are i mean i'm sorry but, but the the next generation coming forward they've got the attention spans of of goldfish uh, mm-hmm. it's it's hard to get anyone to sit down and to digest information in in a plausible way for the sake of accurate recall because we're mm-hmm. so used to very quick sources being brought to the forefront. And this was not, in fact, the milieu of those disciples of Jesus Christ, in in, in this case, first century Judea.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and one of the ways that this is uh, transmitted and promoted is repetition, mm-hmm. right? And that's something that we do have today, uh, because uh, although people don't sit down and digest lots of info... They can quote their favorite songs verbatim, right? Right. Even songs they learned when they were young or very young. Um, And so part of that repetition is liturgical repetition. This Mm -hmm. is yet another layer of formatting because uh, many elements of the New Testament are incorporated into the early liturgy. Like, the baptismal formula comes from Matthew 28, the last chapter in Matthew. Right, right. And, of course, during the Mass, we actually rehearse the very words and actions of Jesus, right? Yep. So, and you do this over and over again. People get baptized. You celebrate the Eucharist. um, And then, of course, there's prayers. There's songs. There's hymns. All this is done over and over in the life of the Church, and that retains that information.
0: Right, right, right. And and that's something that we often don't realize. I was speaking to Jared Stout some time ago about his new book, How the Eucharist uh, Built Civilization, and he highlights the fact that the sacramental liturgical cultus of the Catholic Church essentially built a culture that allowed for and facilitated the transmission of catechetical truth, the kerygma, but also just the, the didache in general, yeah. uh, because culture was built around worship. So Repetition became culture. Repetition became natural. You know, like uh, it, it it was not unthinkable to have parents constantly make the sign of the cross and have that be a form of catechesis. It was not unthinkable for children or, or laborers to be singing religious songs while working. And these were the things that formed culture.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And you find that in both uh, in both ways in the New Testament in that, like I said, Jesus taps into liturgical feasts, Jewish liturgical feast, to highlight his words and speeches. And then you have within the Christian community, you know, the, the words and sayings of Jesus that are incorporated throughout the liturgy. And that's further inculcated through repetition.
0: Right and and so when you think about the new testament words say, in luke 22 you know uh, in as much as you do this do this in remembrance of me and you see in first corinthians paul's going to repeat that in chapter 11 you know we we do this in remembrance The greek word anamnesis it doesn't just mean hey let's remember the way we recall for a test there's something mm-hmm. a lot deeper hidden here like of all of the layers of 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 liter- the, you know the literary styles that, the, the layers of literary styles that you highlighted I I see the liturgical
1: repetition as the linchpin upon which the others hinge. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, Marcus, that brings up a really important point. And this is something that I think evangelicals miss, and sometimes deliberately, is they want to vindicate the gospel text apart from the early church Mm. and apart from tradition. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is the early church is— that which guarantees what the Gospels say is true. Right. Right. And uh, and so that liturgy that they're practicing and so on and so forth, that ties into that because, you know, one aspect of my book is I have does dare-to-verify thing, yep, right? Yep. That uh, the Gospels make these incredible claims, and I, I go through all that. And then I show that, you know— Within the Gospels themselves, they actually they leave clues for the reader to kind of check it out for themselves. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite ones is in John 6, the Bread of Life Discourse. Mm-hmm. If you ever notice, like right after Jesus says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, and you know, he, he says this really powerful language that offended the hearers, even his own disciples, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the narrator jumps in. And it kind of like says, we interrupt this broadcast to give you a very important information. These <laughs> things were done while preaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. Now back to our regularly scheduled program, right? <laughs> right? right? It's like, why, narrator? Why did you jump in to tell us exactly where, you know, the location in which Jesus gave these words? And the reason is, is because... It's almost like a dare to the reader, you know, because they're reading Jesus saying the really offensive words, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood and so on. And they could probably doubt whether this is legitimate. Maybe John made this up or he didn't hear it, but I can't imagine Jesus actually saying it. Well, the, the narrator jumps in and basically dares the reader, hey, check it out. Go to the synagogue in Capernaum, ask the people who are there. They'll verify what I just said's true. Right. And it, you have these like little dares to verify, and we even have evidence in the New Testament that people did, in fact, verify mm-hmm. the facts of the Gospels, uh, most famously the introduction to Luke. Yep, I was going to say exactly that. You yeah. uh, said, you know, there's many narratives out there, and I investigated everything new, and I put it in a nice orderly sequence for you, uh, Theophilus, and for his catechesis. So Theophilus is being catechized. And Luke does the uh he checks the sources and right. he gets back and, and verifies what uh Theophilus is being taught.
0: Right. And and again this verification this notion of verification is so crucial because it's not just about Uh, You know, I I, like Luke alone went back. We have to understand that converting to Christianity was in a lot of ways an act of some kind of suicide, whether career suicide or social suicide or in in some sense, you know, the invitation to personal suicide uh, because of literal persecution there was nothing to be gained in terms of a temporal pleasure sense for the embracing of Christianity in the early church. So these people knew what they were believing in. That's why, you know, that, that modern argument that really holds no water, the, the ones that say, well, you know, these people were Christians and therefore you can't trust the uh, eyewitness accounts. Actually, on the contrary, all the more so should you trust the eyewitness <laughs> accounts. So yeah, just shed some light on that for us, because you tackled that and talking about hostile
1: witnesses. Yeah, um, well, uh, well, you did such a nice job putting that into a package for me. <laughs> um, like I said, it's uh, the only way we can verify is that people did check it out and they were persuaded. And even the ones that aren't persuaded, it's interesting. The gospels include their opinions as well. Mm-hmm. And I actually have a whole book, hostile witnesses, which you know and basically where i look at what the enemies of the church have to say about christ and the church and how they they give these left-handed compliments you know right for example uh you know uh, one of my favorites is uh when jesus is casting out demons and then you have the pharisees say that uh, he cast out demons by the power of you know the prince of demons beelzebub and you notice that they didn't say Hey, these aren't healings. These—he's are, not casting out demons. These people are ill, you know. They don't dismiss it, right? They encounter a real, uh, a real state of affairs that they they have to acknowledge, and how they acknowledge it is they don't deny it. They just say, "Well, the power must come from a really, really right. powerful demon. Right? Right, right. It can't possibly come from God, right?" And, uh, yeah, so you even have that layer of hostile yep. witnesses kind of inadvertently affirming things.
0: And you do a good job in Chapter 3 of this book to highlight how even that, that language of Beelzebub and, you know, the, the master yeah, of the right. house, that the that house. I, I enjoyed that very much. That was brilliantly done. Oh, thanks. So, uh, and, and, you know, going back to exactly that, the notion of either hostile or at the very least unwilling witnesses. You look at Acts 5, verse 39, or 38 and 39. uh, You know, the the apostles are being tried, and Gamaliel stands up and he says, well, you know, if this is not of God, it's going to die. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop them. You might even find yourself fighting against God. I mean, this was a Jewish rabbi respected during his time. He was known as the rabbi, and Paul was blessed to study under him. And here he is accidentally corroborating as a witness the validity of the Christian narrative.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, and you find these these weird little twists here and there, um, which, um, again, that's kind of an odd thing to include if you're just making up a story and right. you want to make make it so believable that everyone will go along with it. Uh, why include uh, what the enemies say? And why do it in such a left-handed way, mm-hmm. you know? Um uh, you know, there's just so many little details like that. You know, throughout uh, the New Testament. So that that was yep. fun.
0: And, and and that brings me to you know essentially <laughs> we've got less than two minutes at this point, but history is written by the victors. You take a look at most historical narratives, and the victors, the ones who essentially authored a the history, they come out like heroes. They, they they come out like 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 champions in every sense of the word, right? Almost divinized. But here we see Jesus being you know lambasted left, right, and center in the gospel narratives. The apostles being lambasted left, right, and center in the Acts of the Apostles. I mean, if this was an attempt at writing history from the perspective of the victor with something to gain.
1: This was a poor job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because you're giving ammo to your uh, defenders. But, you know, again, it's because the situation was what it is. They couldn't explain it away. They have to be truthful about it. And, you know, the Gospels... Uh, Christianity doesn't become the victor. I don't even know if it ever actually does become the victor, but until maybe the 3rd or 4th century, mm-hmm. that's when it kind of uh, uh is over paganism and so on. Uh but the gospels were written in the 1st century, back when they they weren't victors. Right. right? <laughs> they were the persecuted. So uh yeah, I don't I don't think that particular line flies. Right, exactly. I personally don't think so as well. I've been talking to Gary
0: Machuta, who is an apologist, extraordinaire, and author of this book, "The Gospel Truth: How We Can Know that Christ Taught What Christ Taught." This was published by Emmaus Road, and I humbly urge all of you to grab a copy of it. I genuinely think this is going to be one of those books that's going to further the conversation in the Catholic sphere about the validity and accuracy of the gospels. Gary, it was an honor having you, brother. Hey, it was a lot of fun. Thanks, Marcus. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon.